thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Mike Foyer on Parashat Devarim. If you're interested in downloading other digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Parshat Devarim 5780. You know, as the co-author of two works of fiction, I have to tell you that the title of a book is an extremely important decision. You want it to communicate exactly what it is that the reader is about to encounter. And from that perspective, I also have to admit, I often find the names of the books of the Torah a little bit underwhelming. And this week, we're starting a new book. It's a turning a new page, as it were, or at least a new column of scroll. It's an opportunity to get a new name. And here we have, yet again, one of those less than thrilling titles, the book of Devarim, which of course comes from the opening line of Devarim. These are the words that Moshe addressed to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. And indeed, this is a book of many words. Moshe essentially is making one month-plus-long speech to all of B'nai Israel standing there on the plains of the Jordan River. Now, fortunately, the book of Devarim, as is true with all the other books of the Torah, has more than one name. You might be thinking Deuteronomy, which of course is Greek and very few people recognize the fact that it's a translation of the classic name of the book of Devarim, which is Mishneh Torah, the repetition or retelling of the Torah. Now, retelling implies that the storyteller has a critical element of perspective. And in fact, one might be tempted to say that the book of Devarim, the Mishneh Torah, the retelling of all that came before, is indeed Moshe's perspective on everything which has occurred since he became the star of the show. That sounds nice, but it could be theologically highly problematic. You know, the Gemara in Sanhedrin actually says in a Brita, so we're talking about a Tanaic level teaching, the sages taught from the verse, Ki devar Hashem biza, right? Because he despised the word of the Lord and has breached his commandment. That shoal shall be excised, his iniquity shall be upon him. That's a pretty wrathful statement from the book of Numbers itself. And the Gemara goes on to say that this is a reference to one who says the Torah did not originate from heaven, ein Torah min hashamayim. That's pretty definitive and problematic for one who wants to say that the book of Devarim might actually be Moshe's perspective. In fact, if you search further, you'll find that in the, in the Gemara of Baba Batra on 15a, it, there's an argument, one side of which claims that Moshe actually wrote the description of his own death with which the Torah concludes. Nonetheless, there are simply too many textual challenges to treat Devarim just like any other books. I mean, listen to that very introduction. These are the words that Moshe addressed to all of Israel. That clearly frames the Sefer as a personal perspective, as does Moshe's repeated use of the first person all throughout his speech in addressing Am Yisrael. Now this, along with a host of other problems that I'm not going to go into right now, has led to a variety of opinions, from the sages on down to the later authorities, that Devarim is somehow different. That is both part of the Torah, and therefore from heaven, as the Brita said, and yet at the same time deeply expressive of Moshe's own perspective. Listen to how the Orachim HaKodesh resolves the dilemma. He says, Ela Devarim, these are the words, he says, the word Ela is restrictive, especially in regard to what has been written before. And he goes on to explain that 
Seeing Moshe's recorded in this book, meaning devouring only words which he had spoken on his own initiative, the Torah wishes to emphasize that only the words of the curses recorded in this book were spoken by Moshe. And he goes to give his, his explanation, his justification, and says that since the Torah was concerned that we might conclude that just as Moses had felt free to say things of his own volition in this book, he might have done so in the other four books. And that's why it begins with the words, right? They're exclusive. Only these are the words Moshe spoke of his own volition and none other. Now, despite his need to point out that the whole purpose is to sort of um, maintain the divine integrity of the first four books, that's a very radical stance to say that anything in the Torah, much less the bulk of the book of Devarim, actually originated with Moshe. But unfortunately, the Orchayim HaKodesh doesn't explain why. He doesn't go in, at least in this comment, to why the fifth book would contain elements fundamentally different from the other four. And I think we start to get a hint at why that might be and what we might be able to learn from it just a few lines further into the first chapter. Line Dvarim 1.5 says, On the other side of the Jordan, the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound, explain, clarify this Torah. And he said, now that word, right, Be'er et ha-Torah, demands some explanation. And in fact, if we look in the classical commentator, Avram ibn Ezra, he says the following, Right, Moshe began to explain to all the children who had been born in the wilderness what had happened to their parents. He told them all the mitzvot, even the Ten Commandments, right, which their forefathers had heard from God. That in order that the children should hear those Ten Commandments, they themselves, at least from a faithful messenger. Now again, I have to ask, is this just a technical issue, pointing out that Devarim is a repetition because if you missed out on Sinai, you can sit through the review session on the plains of Moab before you get to go into the land. That seems to be a pretty poor explanation for why the fifth book of the Torah is so fundamentally different. And of course, if you listen closely, the Ibn Ezra's example, his proof, actually causes more problems than it's solved. Even a passing glance will show you that the Ten Commandments, which Moshe repeats in Devarim, differ in significant ways from those recorded at Sinai. If you've never done it, it's highly worthwhile to open up a Word document, put it into column format, cut and paste the Ten Commandments, which appear in the book of Exodus and those which appear in Devarim, and look down the line to see how much they diverge. Well, if it can't be that this is simply a review session, since the content differs from that which was given in Exodus, then what does the Ibn Ezra mean when he says, that they'd hear the Ten Commandments, which their forefathers had heard from God, from a faithful messenger? What exactly makes Moshe a faithful messenger in this context if he's not simply repeating the words spoken by God? Isn't that what a faithful messenger is meant to do? And here we start to come to where I see the significance of the Book of Devarim opening up. Because the relationship between Devarim and the other four books of the Torah from a narrative perspective is quite simple. Since the first moment of creation, 
we've been on the move. There was the whole seven-day thing, and then we start getting into early humanity and Noah, and then from Noah we get to Avraham, and Avraham we still Yitzchak, Yaakov, they're down to Egypt, and then there's the Exodus, and we're out in Sinai, wandering through the desert for 40 years, and then boom. Right at the end of the book of Bamidbar, all the action screeches to a halt. There at the plains of Moab, for the entire book of Devarim, Moshe begins to talk and talk and talk and talk and retell much of what the people themselves have already experienced. As the Ibn Ezra says, even the Ten Commandments, which they heard from God at Sinai, are going to be repeated. And in taking something which had up till this point been a mobile narrative, experience after experience, and turning it into a recollection, the Book of Devarim, Moshe, is is positing for us a very fundamental question about life. And that is, where does the truth lie? In our experience or in our subsequent understanding? Now, I know that the biblical critical perspective can give all kinds of explanations for why elements like the Ten Commandments differ between the book of Exodus and that of Devarim. Or why, as we'll see short enough, even certain, so to speak, well, we don't call them historical events, let's call them narrative events, have major elements which are changed. But I want to think about the philosophical, the cognitive implication. Where does the truth lie? Well, what do I mean? I'll give you an example. I want you to stop right now and think of an event in your own life, which happened at least five years ago. You can even hit pause and reflect on it. But it was an event which happened at least five years ago, after which you said, huh, nothing's ever going to be the same again. Take a second and think about it. You can even hit pause because I'm going to move on. Because once you have that event, now ask yourself, at least five years later, do you understand that event now the same way in which you understood it when it occurred? And I've got news for you. I think it's highly unlikely that an event that you define as life-changing means the same to you, that you understand it in the same way now as you did when it occurred. And so therefore, there's a question. Where does the truth lie? Your experience was real, but your subsequent understanding, the further you move from it, but continually returning to it, as you grow and change, your own experiences change with you. Not the event, but your understanding, your interpretation, and their impact upon you. And in the Torah, that process begins with the book of Devarim. Because Moshe is now, at the end of their journey through the wilderness, retelling events which, remember, if you were 19 years old at Sinai, forget the Ibn Ezra's point about the children that were born in the wilderness. If you were 19 years old at Sinai, then you are rehearing the events of your own life. And this poses, like I said, this question of the relationship between our experience and our subsequent understanding. And we're going to return to its significance in Torah shortly. But for now, I would also point out to you that this is the powerful model of memory. Remember, memory, which is the Torah's guiding light, it's its primary frame how we're meant to relate to the past, right? They says it again and again in all the commandments that memory is a method, a model for integrating past, present, and future. We exist in the present, but we summon up the past into a story that helps us be who we want to be in the present. And since our identity is future-oriented, be it aspirational or anxiety-ridden, depending on what time, what side of the bed we got up on. But since that's the case, we build a story of the past which can create an identity in the present that will help us get to the future which we want to achieve. 
And that process on the national scale begins with Moshe retelling the events of the past to a people who are sitting right on the edge of their future. Just across the Jordan is that good green land which they've been promised. Now, just to give you an example, so this moves out of the abstract and more into the literary analytical, I want to point out a major story which has been changed in this first chapter of Devarim. And we'll see what it is that Moshe had to learn. If you go back to the book of Bamidbar, 13th chapter, in the first couple of lines, this is the beginning of the story of the spies. And there it says, God spoke to Moses saying, Simple reading, send men to scout the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to Am Yisrael, one from each tribe, etc., etc. And, and then it says at the end, Moshe sent them out of Midbar Paran by the Lord's command. Okay, hopefully you know the story. And yet, in our Parsha, in the first chapter of Devarim, lines 20 through 23, or um, may I'll jump forward, Right? Well, actually, no. And Moshe speaking said, I've, I said to you, hey, you've, you've arrived at the, the mountain of the Amorites, which God has said he's going to give you. God has given the land before you. Go up, inherit it as God has commanded you. Don't be afraid and don't tremble. But everybody came to me, says Moshe, no, no, we want to send some people out there so that they can spy out the land and bring us back word on whether it's feasible or not. And, says Moshe, it seemed like a good idea to me. And I took 12 people from amongst you and I sent them. Well, wait a minute. In the book of Bemibur, it seems that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to scout the land of Canaan. And Moses sent them al Hashem. Here, Moshe is turning to the people and saying, you all came to me and said, we want to send people, and I thought it was a good idea, and so we did it. Now, which one is it? Those are pretty contradictory statements. If you look back in the section in Bamidbar, you'll see that on the phrase Shlachlacha, Rashi brings a very interesting statement. He reads Shlachlacha as Lidatcha. Ani, im He says that Shlachlacha means according to your own judgment. I'm not commanding you, says God, but if you think it's a good idea, so send them. And there's a whole articulation of this perspective that Rashi is drawing off in the Tanhuma in Shelach. I, I, can, I included it in the source sheet if you want to look at the depth of it. But this is a fascinating difference in perspective between the real time, Shlach Lecha, Bamidbar, where it seems that Moshe sent the, peop- the spies according to God's word, and here in Devarim, in the retelling, where it seems that Moshe actually first heard the request from the people, thought it was a good idea, and then decided to do it himself. Now, it's interesting, and we'll talk a little bit more about how two perspectives like that could both be written to the Torah, but what really moves me is the conclusion that Moshe draws, again, in our parsha, the first chapter of Devarim, the 37th line, after he speaks about the punishment meted out upon Israel for the sin of the spies, which, of course, I'm sure you know is 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But there in line 37, he says, And God was also enraged against me because of you, saying, You too, Moshe, will not go into the land. 
Now, that's a mighty strange statement, considering that the Torah itself goes out of its way to repeatedly emphasize Moshe was banned from entering Eretz Israel because he'd struck the rock. If you ask any of my kids, they'll tell you. That's why he couldn't go. So add that observation of Moshe about why he couldn't go into the land to that cryptic statement from Rashi made way back at the beginning of Exodus. Context is Moshe's sense of despair. It's set in right after he tried to tell Paro to let the people go, and instead of doing so, Paro makes their labor even harder. You may recall this is when he takes away the straw to make the bricks. And the people come to Moshe and they say, May the Lord look upon you in punishing you for making us loathsome to Paro and his courtiers. It's bad news. He's trying to help, and they're criticizing him. Moshe turns to God and says, Why did you send me? Right? Lama Hariota, why did you make things worse? Now, God's response to Moshe seems simple. He says, you'll soon see what I'll do to Paro. Okay, the people are upset because things have gotten worse instead of better. Moshe complains to God and says, why did you send me? It only made things worse. And God says, hang on, you'll see what I'll do to Paro. But again, Rashi adds a layer of meaning taken from the Gemara. What will now be done to Paro, you'll see says the Gemara, but thou shalt not see what will be done to the kings of the seven nations of Canaan when I bring them to the Holy Land. Meaning, already back there, Moshe's inability to hold the situation. He's turning to God and saying, Lama Hariota, why did you make it worse? According to the Gemara, indicated that Moshe wouldn't make it into the Holy Land. I don't think this was a punishment. I think it was a warning. One which Moshe, sadly, did not seem to grasp. And I think the reason is clear. Having seen God face to face, having stood on Sinai, I mean, after all, Karan Panav, his face was shining. Moshe was continually challenged by the people's need for process and gradual growth. To him, God's will was clear. To them, it needed to be digested, internalized, and acted upon in the same flawed way that the rest of us do. And so Moshe got enraged at the rock. And in our Parsha, he finally recognizes his fundamental flaw, that he could not speak to the fe- people's fear. Remember that statement when in describing in Devarim? It says, he says to them, don't be afraid. But it seems just a bit dismissive. I think that this whole spy episode back in Bamibar was a test. Was Moshe the right leader for the generation of the conquest or not? So what happens? Shlach lecha. Every time up until that point that Moshe has a question from the people, whether it's the Benot Slovchad who want to know whether they can inherit it or whether it's the people who want to know whether they can still do the Passover sacrifice having become impure of the dead, any question that Moshe gets, he just turns to God and says, what do I do? Now, when it's time to send the spies, when the people, as he says in Devarim, come to him, and say, we want to send spies. Moshe turns to God, just like always, and says, God, I want to send spies. What should I do? Or they want to send spies. What should I do? And God says to Moshe, I don't know, Moshe. What should you do? And Moshe listens to the people. He's unable to appreciate their fear, or maybe he appreciates their fear, but he's unable to speak to it. He was unable to really bring them around to see that they were able to do what they needed to do and that God had made a promise which would hold them and keep them 
safe, a divine promise of the good land and the miracles surrounding them should have made them feel safe. And Moshe couldn't speak to their fear. He thought it was right to send the spies at the time, but now on the edge of the land, he realizes the truth that because of them, because really of him and his inability to speak to that fear, he now realizes he belonged on Sinai amongst the cloud of glory. He was not going to be processed not going to be part of that process of building a society, that was going to be the task of a new generation. Now, this leads us to one last perspective on the relationship between Devarim and the rest of the Torah. It could simply be Moshe's retelling. It could also be that beginning of a process of memory and searching out where the truth lies in our experience or in our subsequent understanding. It could be Moshe's reflection and his extraction of the deep lessons of that happened to him too quickly in life to really appreciate. And it could also be the beginning of what we know as Torah Shebaal Peh, of the oral Torah, which really functions as a bridge between the unchanging revelation of Sinai and the ever-evolving reality in which we live. And as the great Hasidic master, Svas Emes, says, Zeu ikar Mishneh Torah, this is the essential nature of the Mishnah Torah. Which is of the quality, has an aspect of connection between the process of the oral Torah and the unchanging nature of the written Torah. He says the Moshe was, of course, that aspect of the written Torah. As I said, he stood on Sinai. He spoke to God face to face. Process was not so much in his lexicon. But the people going to the land, says the Svat Emes, they actually have that quality of the oral Torah. They're going to have to constantly apply their lessons and re-understand their messages. And the truth is going to be a dynamic process orientation as opposed to the overwhelming revelation of the Torah Shebikhtav. The Chayni concludes, Mishnah Torah kolel Mishnehem. And that's why the Mishnah Torah actually includes both aspects. It is the gate which connects them. And so here, at the beginning of the Book of Divine, when the children of Israel, back then, are standing on the edge of the good Greenland, attempting to understand the lessons of the past in order to equip them in the present to build the future of which they dream in the land that they've been promised, it behooves us to take that wisdom to heart as we begin the Book of Devarim. To look not just at the text, and not just at the events of history, but at the elements of our own lives, and ask ourselves, where does the truth lie? Is it a static quantity, which happened once upon a time, and we need to chase backwards in order to find it? Or does that static quantity itself demand from us a dynamic reality, one in which we visit and revisit, and we integrate, reapply those static truths to a constantly evolving reality? And thus, the past equips us in the present to build the future of which we dream. Let it be soon. Let it be now. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify, where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels, or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.